LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com The machines have gathered an army, and as I speak, that army is drawing nearer to our home. Believe me when I say we have a difficult time ahead of us, but if we are to be prepared for it, we must first shed our fear of it. I stand here before you now, truthfully unafraid. Why? Because I believe something you do not? No, I stand here without fear because I remember. I remember that I am here not because of the path that lies before me, but because of the path that lies behind me. I remember that for 100 years we have fought these machines. I remember that for 100 years they have set their armies to destroy us. And after a century of war, I remember that which matters most. We are still here! Today! Let us send a message to that army. Tonight, let us shake this cave. Tonight, let us tremble these walls of earth, steel, and stone. Let us be heard from red tar to black sky. Tonight, let us make them remember. This is Zion, and we are not afraid! Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is James Tunney. We like to think of technology as liberating and levelling, allowing open access to information and greater equality of opportunity. However, in the early 21st century it is becoming increasingly clear that the technologies of connection and communication are turning and being turned against us. To the dysfunctions caused by over-reliance on and addiction to consumer technologies are being added the insidious impositions of a matrix of coercive control and surveillance rapidly encircling the earth. Mainstream media, mindless entertainment and other weapons of mass distraction are blinding billions to the high-tech dystopia currently being constructed all around them, from which there may soon be no escape. Many of us already experience being denied access to the global informational grid, whether by holding the wrong opinions or by simply not possessing the latest gadgets. The possibility of a future where there are no alternatives should give us all pause for thought. Hello and welcome, James, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Uh, great to talk to you again, Greg. I'm looking forward uh, to our conversation. 
Now, although the subtitle to this broadcast does mention COVID, I should state straight out of the gates that this is not predominantly a pandemic broadcast, as it were. Um, it's more a question of like how we got to where we are now in terms of technology, uh, technological development and where we might be going. So, I'd, and I do mention again in the subtitle for this, uh, the words control and coercion, which we're seeing unprecedented levels of now. But again, we will, we will get to that later on. Uh, before we dive into our talk, uh, for listeners who don't know, just tell them a little bit about your background and your work in general. Yeah, just uh, to remind you that uh, I come from a legal background. Uh, I was a senior lecturer in law and visiting professor, and I, I, I wrote in a, a wide range of legal topics. I left the academy after about 15 years and after studying three degrees before that. And I decided to concentrate on art and writing. And recent years have become concentrated on mysticism. As, as the bright, as a bright side and the idea of spir- spiritual evolution. And in relation to the dark side, I've concentrated and anticipated to some extent the evolution of what I call the empire of scientism, which I believe we have moved into. And I, I predicted them in some sense. And uh, the, the idea that we're now living in a scientocracy. We've actually ent- entered it, which is of its nature, tyrannous or totalitarian. And I think we're, we're at that point. A lot of people don't want to recognize that, but so a number of books I've written are, are, are critical books trying to explain that as a phenomenon and to make to make that point and to develop a robust analysis which or hypothesis which people can examine for themselves and test it in relation to how events uh, unfold. So that, that that's that's a brief introduction. But I just want to relate something I was reminded of a little anecdote, and it was back I think in about two thousand and seven. And because I clearly remember this inter- interchange, I'm not quite sure why, but I was an editor of a magazine at the time, and I found myself, uh, one of the things I was doing was policing the forum, if you know what I mean, just to make sure things were respectful. And he, he, that was me heading for middle age, and I got into this chat with a young guy, again, young enough to be my son at the time, and uh, he was really into the music that the ma- we put in the magazine, it was Music Mag. And somehow got onto the topic of freedoms. It must have been something I was working on at the time, an article or something. I was saying to him, well, you know, he, he sort of was basically saying, oh, technology's great. It's so liberating. We've never been more free than we are now. Look at the internet. And I said, well, you don't have to push very far in any direction. Freedom can just evaporate. He couldn't, or I couldn't get him to get his head around the idea. I told him about how much freer I felt. Uh, when I was his age, and he just couldn't wrap his head around, and in the end up, he just held up his arms metaphorically and just said, "Look, I, I don't know what sort of freedom you were referring to." You know, he couldn't imagine being more free than he was. And basically, it occurred to me that since I started paying attention to te- technological development, control, surveillance—you know, these things—that, ironically enough, around about 1984, the, the bomb dropped. If you pardon the pun, for me. At some point when I realized that with increasing technology, you've seen this development throughout my life anyway, has come with decreasing freedom, basically. And again, a lot of people think that's counterintuitive. But I basically, what I remember from the 80s is something very valuable. People didn't always know where I was. They didn't know what I was doing. And so many areas of our lives are now facilitated by tech. That's no longer the case. So I think back to sort of 
for me anyway, I, I thought the 80s was a great decade. A lot of people were very critical of it, but I thought it was wonderful for those reasons and, and more. Yes, well, the problem for a lot of younger people, perhaps, is to understand that there have been huge costs associated with technology and with technological networks. So associated with those costs, and the, and the costs are usually related to a type of inversion. For example, social media, as we know, is very antisocial. People don't talk to each other. And there's a price you pay for that because we're social beings who used to communicate with each other in an unpoliced way, in, in a way which was informal and unpredictable. And those, some of those social interactions have been replaced very significantly. Associated with that is there seems to be a great loss of confidence, a great loss of purpose, a great loss of uh, optimism associated with a very uh, negative nihilistic existential sense, which is associated with the idea that you are merely a physical being, a material being who interacts through sensation, uh, through looking at what other people have. And that's, that's, that, can, that has affected a lot of people and created false expectations. People have have lost touch with reality, lost touch with nature, lost, lost touch with ideas of who they are. They have bought very much into what I call the, the black magic of materialism because it is a spell that is cast, that is broadcast and spread over us. And it is in the nature of magic, as was anticipated by people like Manly Hall. And associated with that is this great myth, the modern myth of progress, the great story of our time is, is the story of advance of science and the denigration of all other modes of seeing the world. And this is, uh, this leads to a situation where anything which is not science, which is not part of the scientific, technological or, or technique network is, is vilified and its contribution is, is reduced and denied. So there is no competing, there's less and less competing uh, ways of seeing the world. And it's, it's very, very dangerous. It's designed to be, uh, ultimately, a prison system. The networks that are growing up are all in some way traced back to the military-industrial complex, which I call sometimes the security, industrial, military and pharmaceutical complex because they're all fundamentally interrelated. We can see the military industrial complexes behind the internet, a lot of these systems, even the airline industry. People forget that low-cost travel was uh, began with people like Freddie Laker during the, the Berlin airlift uh, and it was a use of, of military equipment initially for civilian purposes which grew and served other purposes associated with selling the idea of globalization and the uh, there is definitely a use of these goodies toys systems in a way which is clear that is for our surveillance to entrap us in the network to entrap us in the technosphere to entrap us in the technium to entrap, entrap us in what i might call the techno square where our lives are turned inside out and turned into this digital context. So there are severe, severe dangers that were anticipated by a lot of philosophers, a lot of thinkers. Uh, even people like William Blake, we, we forget, which we might talk about again. So uh, young people in particular, 
for example, computer games and the amount of time people have spent on computer games and the costs of that, they're often ignored in context of the isolation and alienation of young people. Don't want to sound like a real old man talking, but I'm looking at the evidence and from what people are saying and from the behavior of younger people. And uh, that's, that creates a huge cost. So we hear all about the benefits. This is part of the propaganda model that Chomsky told us about. And that people, critics of the, or the advance of technology, like Jacques Ellul or Bernard Charbonneau in France wrote about. And Ellul, who, who wrote The Technological Society, a book which was critical for a lot of people, also wrote a book on propaganda, which explained about the nature of propaganda. These go hand in hand and propaganda has to be pervasive. So it's not surprising that people don't believe that there are alternatives because they're programmed from the time they're in school. People forget, and, and Elul mentioned this, that the education system is a necessary element of the propaganda system. And this was a thing that was appreciated by people like going back to in the, in the 1916 in Ireland, uh, the leader of the revolution, Porrick Pierce, had written a book called The Murder Machine about how the British Empire used the education system to destroy the minds of children. So um, it's not surprising that people coming through this system have uh, come out with the myths, with the mantras, and that can repeat them about the benefits of science, how bad religion is, how bad spirituality is, and the history can be rewritten to suit the purposes of the people who control us. Listeners can find my interview with uh, Rupert Sheldrake on LegalizeFreedom.com. The interview also exists as a magazine article. Uh, which is also available to read if you prefer to do that. But he's been very critical of some of the things that you've been speaking of about, um, you know, that, that science is, after all, done by people, human beings, and they've got all the baggage that they, that, you know, that we all bring through life, you know, things that happen to us. And we're, they're not just objective observers. You know, he, Sheldrick pointed out how Somebody's writing, writing up an experiment and they'll use these silly phrases like a test tube was taken, you know, when they're describing what they do. Yes. Not I took a test tube or she took a test tube. It's kind of like they're automatons, you know, and they're nothing that they, nothing in their mind or their emotions or anything like that comes to the table. That's what they like to think, but it, it doesn't work like that. And Sheldrick's famous run-in with Richard Dawkins is just a really emblematic of some of the things he's been critical with. And basically Dawkins came out and said he wanted to get Sheldrake on a TV show. And he said, no, we're not going to talk about your ideas. I'm going to debunk your ideas. And Sheldrake was like, why would I want to be part of something that's debunking my own ideas? You know, are you going to let me speak or not? And, and Dawkins said, no, you know, yeah. this, is, this is a debunking program. So Sheldrake said, okay, that's forget it. He actually yeah. thought Dawkins was serious about talking to him. And yeah. another thing that we feel that we have to do sometimes, I don't know if you do, is you have to pre presage these things with I'm not anti science, but it's like you have to explain yourself. You know, you have to say, say I'm I'm pro science, but here I'm cri critical of this particular aspect of it. And it really is like a modern um, witch hunt these days. You know, and I use that that analogy advisedly. You know, for anybody who uh, uh, expresses any of the things that you have put there, uh, I'm not sure about this. You know, maybe this isn't such a good trend. If it's anything to do with science, you'd get shot down in flames very quickly. On the aforementioned anti-social media, of course. Yes. Yeah, and even uh, of the greatest respect uh, for Sheldrake, and, and I love his work, and 
uh, other scientists of that nature, the post-materialist kind, I don't think actually they have been sufficiently critical of the present institutionalized scientocracy which is emerging. So I'd like to see them be a bit more uh, careful or a bit more clear now in, in relation to the civil liberties aspect, which they have to go for it. I understand everyone can't do that work, but it's, it, it is a bit funny that people like uh, Jordan Peterson, for example, who was t preaching about uh, totalitarianism, uh, well, the poor man got sick and went missing in action when, when we needed him, but he didn't seem to notice that there was a totalitarianism right before our eyes, which which is a bit unfortunate. So I think we need more and more of those critics who are crit critiquing the scientific model to come forward uh, as well in relation to the actual scientocracy that we're getting, because here we have all their fears being manifested in institutional systems, all the arguments that uh, Doc or, or that Sheldrake correctly identifies are now manifesting themselves in real realpolitik. So it's not a, a matter of prediction anymore. It's not a matter of looking into the crystal ball. It's, we're not doing what Shaka Lul was doing. He described where technique uh, was going, where technology was going, and he anticipated a, a, total, a war of global totalitarianism associated with technology as other people did, Gunter Anders, for example. But now we're seeing the institutional manifestation and the tactics and strategy being manifested before our eyes. So, for example, whatever way one wants to to look at the, the, the COVID context, there's no doubt that the response to the COVID uh, context has been draconian, uh, has been disproportionate, and has been utilized for other purposes, which are consistent with what scientists from the 1920s, like uh, Bernal, uh, said was going to happen, or which H.G. Wells directed us towards as a policy, he said it was an open conspiracy, that they were going to establish a new world order, in his words, uh, and that they would use kind of biomedical directorates to allow um, scientists, the scientific elite, to rule the world out their wisdom, and then to happily experiment, or as Bernal said, you know, to, to satisfy their curiosity and the curiosity would triumph over their humanity. So uh, the the it's going to become clearer and clearer to some people, but people have been so brainwashed and people are so happy with bread and circuses that the big issues for them are whether Newcastle is taken over by the Saudis, for example, and they seem very, very glad that uh, Tyrannus government has, has taken over a, a, a club. Uh, I don't understand that. I've never understood well, in recent years, how, how people continue to support these major corporations that have no lo no real local interest, save siphoning money off the public and keeping them in, in a, a stupefied state. But that's what people choose in the context of, of, of what's happening. There are serious issues that cannot be avoided, and people have to pay attention to them because distraction and inversion are two of the main uh, strategies associated with the uh, the endeavor to establish a scientocracy. Now, I think we've moved into the I've concluded that we've moved into the scientocracy in January 2020. I think it's quite clear that uh, the coordination, the consistency of action, the uh, lack of opposition, the uh, correspondence between the left and the right, the supposed left and the right, the materialist on both sides, the left hand and the right hand of the one. Uh, corporate body, the uh, what you might call progressive neoliberalism, 
uh, in, uh, note, note the absence in this of the people who used to be anti, the, the left who used to be anti-globalism uh, in the past. They've united in, in the effort to create this empire of scientism. Um, and uh, an interesting point is, in the book I wrote about Blue Lives September, I had this lockdown and curfews in London. This was before it happened. But they were prefigured by lights on the, on the strange lights on St. Paul's Cathedral on the dome. And I only discovered recently that on the 28th of November, on William Blake's birthday in, in 2019, they projected a picture of one of his figures, the Ancient of Days, on the top of St. Paul's. And the funny thing is, we want to call it funny, the ironic thing is that his Ancient of Days was not God, as people think, because it's a man with a beard. It's a man with a beard, people recognize the image, and his dividers or compass on the dome of St. Paul's. And this represented him, for him, Eurizen, or Eurizen, uh, representing the rational faculty, which left to its own devices would be satanic. It was equivalent to satanic. So for me, it was a unconscious, conscious indication that reason, rationality, the measurers, the quantifiers were coming to power. Now, that is a symbolic representation of that, but it's difficult to interpret otherwise for me. I'm not, I'm not saying that people directly did that, intended it to it, but in an unconscious way, it kind of prefigures and anticipates the move into scientocracy, which we have moved into. Well, I can't remember which Olympic opening ceremony it was, maybe the last one that was in London. Did you see the whole, that freak show of people running like hospital wards? It was like a, da did, yeah. a dance, did, yeah. a dance, the dance routine or something. It was just like, what the hell? I mean, even if what was happening now wasn't happening, it's still just weird. Like what, what sort of mind, what, what comes up with this? You know, it's meant to be opening of a big sporting series of sporting events, you know. The entertainment industry is about holding attention, and holding attention is necessary to uh, distract us. That, that's what its objective is. Bread and circus, we know, going back to the Roman era, and Etienne de la Botte in his essay about servitude, and, and when, he, when he's trying to understand why so many people give up their freedom uh, for so little, uh, emphasize how freedom could be purchased by trinkets by uh, the authorities, and people have this strange desire. Now, I've characterized that as similar to a kind of bondage relationship with dominance and sub submission. And I, I have been interested in that, not personally, not as a practitioner, I don't criticize anyone that does, but I think that has become a motif of our time. And you go back to the time of Madonna, and that uh, that era, like a virgin, etc., when they're changing, if you like, that strong archetype in Europe, the Virgin Mary, etc., changing it into a commercial icon. She's becoming an icon, Madonna herself. And there was that, uh, the, the erotica album and all that, where bondage became a key issue. And I was curious about why that became so important in fashion and a whole range of topics. And in many ways, it was a kind of priming for our slavery, the idea that continuing on from Huxley Slavery is good. You can be a slave. It's nice. Submit. Be obedient. It will be pleasurable for you to, be, to submit to the dominant forces. Uh, that idea, which I call tech bondage, and, and the idea that we're moving into the tech bondage, 
is, is another idea associated. There has been this priming that has been going on for, for a while. If you want to establish an empire and maintain an empire, you're talking about long trajectories. People find it difficult to believe that people can make plans over generations. But if you look at the scientific endeavor, the Enlightenment, going back to Francis Bacon, True Locke, and all, all them, they, they were involved in an empire. If, if, if you want, depending on when you want to uh, start the British Empire, you could start it with the uh, magician John Dee and his, his magic ceremonies to invoke an empire, uh, going back to the Elizabethan period and the use of of course, remember that the, the navy and these forces are effectively pirates. They're pirating uh, ships on the high sea. Uh, this is another function of, of that control system. But the empire was very, very successful. And my argument is that that empire transmogrified into an empire of scientism. And it began to happen in the Victorian era. If you, if you look back in particular, the 1860s, Thomas Huxley, and the X Club, where they began a policy of entryism, or to, to, to use science to take over other organizations and to displace anything spiritual. So it's, it's also interesting, there's a paradox here, because we're told all the time that it was, for example, you hear all the time, the Roman Catholic Church it was that would persecute and, uh, homosexuals and that. But if you look at the legislation, it came from Henry VIII first, the first uh, time, and then in the 18, the 1861 Offences Against the Person Act, we're, we're, we're talking about the British Empire, and it was the British Empire that was responsible for uh, half of the countries around the world having criminal legislation against homosexuality, which of course uh, was the up the ante in the 1885 Act. But uh, that period also corresponded remarkably with the growth of Darwinism, and probably there, there was a very strong idea about the necessity to have a competitive or competitive administrators in, in, in the imperial system itself, which people forget. So the, they, they ignore, again, going back to your earlier point, the role of science in a, in a lot of functions and how pervasive science is and how science was behind a lot of the ideas of racism and how they have changed the story and how uh, because of the link between science and technology and corporations and networks and the military-industrial complex that has been so easy for to incorporate psychologists and behaviorists into the network of propaganda so that we don't notice it anymore. It's so pervasive uh, and it, it, it's no, there's no doubt that they utilize ceremonies as a priming, uh, a priming of our subconscious, a preparation with weird things that they have studied uh, that uh, prepare us for, for for things coming, and then themes may be given to, on you know, to people that don't really understand the deeper context. But certainly, I think that black magic is is an appropriate description for some of these uh, grand ceremonies. Using black magic in a term that uh, specialist or destructive magic, if you want, uh, that specialists would use that term in the way they would use that term. And the last point on that, Greg, is that. People forget, if you look at the anthropology of magic, Malinowski and, and people like that, that sorcery is associated with the ruling class. The ruling classes are the ones that become interested in sorcery. They don't want opposition. That's why, for example, King James and that and, and the persecution of the witches, the, the, the royalties believed in these things. That's why they wanted to persecute other witches that they, they didn't have control of. Well, I mean, some of the most hardcore materialists, you know, who 
uh, don't actually really believe their own their own hype, if you see what I mean. You find yeah. when you do get up into upper echelons of uh, society and organisations, and this is not to strike a conspiratorial note, I've just I've met some of these people, that there is a, a implicit understanding of the non-material dimensions of reality and, um, you know, the power of thought and consciousness and all, all that stuff that they poo-poo uh, with their cold, hard, you know, scientific view of reality that matter is all that matters and five-sense reality is all there is. So, I mean, straight away, that should be, you know, a warning sign. Uh, yes, and I, I tend to draw a distinction between mysticism and magic. Now, you can't, it's not a fixed distinction, but uh, as a basic principle. And in magic, if you go back to Yeats or, or any of these descriptions, different types, you could take her for uh, categorization, which refers to kind of ceremonial magic and divine light magic and natural magic. And I think that there's something in that distinction. But if you look in particular at ceremonial magic and conjuring and, and those ideas, uh, ideas that would be more associated, it, it, not necessarily, but elements of it would be associated with uh, invocation of, of spirits and, and, uh, and that. The we're in, in that domain, we're into the Dr. Faust's scenario, Christopher Marlowe or, or Goethe. And in that domain, we're into the idea of the magician who believes in these forces. It's not that they don't believe in these forces. It's that they believe that on this, this plane is the most important. For some people, Aurobindo links that to the idea of supermanhood or superpersonhood and he he describes that as the kind of the illegitimate left hand path where you're using your will to achieve power on this level and you're willing to forgo whatever uh, whatever consequence will will follow in the afterlife it's not even that they disbelieve necessarily in the afterlife but there's also a a, a connection sometimes between the powerful psychology of magic and the for people that don't believe in, in even in the spiritual dimension, the idea that these are powerful psychological forces that can allow people act in a different way, enter a, a different character, and manifest power, because the, the link between magic and science is well established, as people like Arthur C. Clarke mentions, and C.S. Lewis gives a good makes a good point on this. He said that. In the in the past, and I suppose you'd associate with this with mysticism, that that, that the what humans sought to adapt to their environment and to the world of spirits around them, but in magic, the idea is that you adapt the world to yourself and your own needs, and this is often associated with the idea of Prometheus. It's associated with the Promethean element of science, or the idea, for example, that the Manhattan Project was was a kind of Promethean uh, endeavor. Uh, and it's also interesting about the Manhattan Project that it's only about half of the project itself that was actually done under the auspices of the army. This is another point about the military-industrial complex, that there is so much, there's so many bodies in between the public uh, and the and industry as an interface that a lot of developments are not actually done under control of public authorities, and they can spring up in the interstices, in the in the margins, in the gaps, 
And this is what has happened in the transnational context in relation to global regulation. But yes, I think that's right. And uh, even looking, at, I've been looking recently, I'm going to talk about Francis Bacon and Francis ba the, the, uh, the painter. And Francis Bacon, the painter, of course, was related to the, the great Francis Bacon, the philosopher, who's also interested in magic. And, uh, but if you look at Francis Bacon closely, you'll find that he was interested in magic of a different type. Uh, and um, I hope to explain that in future, but uh, they, they, although they seem to be materialists, there is an awareness and an openness to other dimensions. So they're not all, uh, they're certainly not all materialists in, in, in a deep sense that they can see, although a lot of them, a lot of them are. Well, there's a definition of magic, isn't there, as the art and science of causing change according to will. Uh, so yes. straight away, it's, it's saying it's scientific. It's also a, you know, an art form, you know, hence the ritual element in traditional uh, yes. magic. In, in terms of technology, uh, those of us who are old enough to remember 9-11 and the aftermath of that, we saw how it was technology that was employed to uh, bring in greater control and surveillance, not just into into travel, but in society more widely. And... But even back then, you know, like I didn't, uh, I got a mobile phone, I think, around about 1999. Uh, obviously, it was a very limited capacity. It was literally just a phone. I was on the internet at home from 98 because I had to be for work. But a lot of people still didn't have the internet at home. Maybe people still go to internet cafes, if you can remember such things. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, things have moved on exponentially since then. And even though there are, I think we're seeing diminishing returns with new technological developments, you know, I'm not convinced that every new smartphone they bring out is necessarily better than the one that went before it. And you can apply that to a lot of consumer electronics. But things have moved on so much. And this matrix of control and surveillance that we're generally talking about, of course, that was already underway. And there were things that came into play, rules, regulations, ways of doing things, systems, after 9-11 that we were specifically told were temporary measures. And, of course, they're still with us. If you'd said to me before 9-11, a day will come when you're going to have to take off half your clothes and go through a full body scanner and you won't be allowed to take a bottle of water through security, I'd have said, pardon the pun, I said, that's not going to fly. Who's going to yeah. do Who's going to do that? Who's going to take off their belt and submit to like having their crotch, you know, groped by security? So who's going to do that? Here yeah. we are. Here we are. And the thing that I see now is, and it's been so rapid, the normalization of this, more of this control and surveillance matrix as a pandemic response. It'll be interesting to see how many of these so-called temporary measures are actually temporary. No, they're going to get worse. And, and uh, just again, it's always useful to look at a historical trajectory and two contexts that I would point out. One, the book IBM and the Holocaust, explaining how the punch card operation system was necessary for the Nazis and useful after they identified religious affiliation in the census, they were able then, they knew where the people they wanted were, and they knew how, so that's why you see the, the Nazis in the films with their, their list. They knew where people are. So that simple technology, punch card system, led to massive devastation. It shows you how dangerous information is. But we don't have, we don't, we can go back further in time. Go back to 1086. So nearly uh, a thousand years ago, so remember 1066, the Normans come over, 
Again, they utilize superior technology to steer up and not to gain power. It's very, very interesting thinking about tyranny as well, that often it's small groups of people with superior technology that gain power. That's how they gain power. Now, the Normans, the Norman system is, is still there, of course, uh, imperial system. I believe that there were more Romans involved with the Normans than is believed. Usually Normans referred to the uh, people from the north. I think there was a lot of a healthy mixture of Roman families. It's even in the name Norman. Uh, and uh, there is a link back to the, the Roman ethos and the Roman imperial ethos. So after, after securing power in, in, in England and that, in 1086, they did a doomsday book. So if you look at the doomsday book, it's quite remarkable. They charted every farm in, in, in England and what it produced and the wealth of it. So they did that in 1086. So they could tell, for example, on any farm in, in York who owned what. It was a remarkable, a remarkable information data gathering system. So that was in, in, in 1086, and it was necessary there, uh, uh, necessary part of their apparatus and administration. Imagine what they're going to do now with all the information they have on us. They will turn, they are turning us inside out. They are using us as guinea pigs, a lot of the uh, guinea pigs, a lot of the new theories and conscious agency and that are really coming about, in my view, from study of what's happening and how we behave. And the algorithms, are not only feeding us stuff often that we don't want, but they're, they're lifetime experiments on us. And associated with that, it leads to an ability to be able to manipulate us. Uh, and to uh, that has been very, very successful uh, hitherto. And even yesterday, I, I, I look at the Daily Mail. It kills me every day, but just to see what kind of uh, propaganda they're sending out. Uh, and it's quite interesting. But there was, there was two articles yesterday about brain implants and great and great advances in brain implants. One which was a helmet they put on your head with light, which I've kind of anticipated. And I, I know I've come across some people that have worked in these domains as well. But it's quite clear to me that light is an important part of the brain functioning. Uh, and that's something that you put on your head sounds good. But then the new implants uh, to uh, regulate depression. And this is inserted in the brain. And this corresponds with the World Economic Forum talking about personalized medicine. Personalized medicine is implanting things in your skull, it seems, for, for, for a lot of people. So uh, the rate of change is one thing, but the where it's going is another. And for me, it's clear it's network transhumanism. Whatever way it works, you will be getting an implantation. The plantations that the colon, colonial powers used in Northern Ireland, in, in the, the New World, as they called it. This idea of plantation uh, and movement of people, single crops to, to, to bolster the empire, uh, has changed to implantation. You will be getting it, there's no question. This this technology, which is ne will, will be used, will, will be prescribed. Uh, the rate of change is rapid. Uh, it becomes cheap to make this. It's cheap to make some of these stuff once the, once it's it's done uh, first. Once the the, the movement uh, moving ahead, I was going <laughs> happens. So the we can expect that that's going to happen. There's no these guys have no desire for messy individual free 
people. And even you become so cynical, you say, well, why are they so, why are they so intent on having, you know, massive insulation campaigns? And it's probably because when they begin to say, oh, we've destroyed the atmosphere, it'll be easy to say, well, stay at home in your safe homes is the safest place. Because if you look at the the COVID in, in boxing terms, I see it, the COVID strategy has been a kind of left jab in boxing terms. And it's it's been followed by a, a kind of right cross. And the right cross is the breakdown society, it's the breakdown of supply chain systems. And it's a, it, it leads to commercial and economic collapse, which we're seeing now. And that will be followed by, by a kind of maybe a left liver punch, which will constitute financial collapse. And when that happens, the breakdown context allows them to do what they want to do. They're already telling you about personalized medicine. They're already telling you about networks. They're already telling you about how you have to be linked up in the network and digital currency. So the uh, the consequence of this will be that we won't we won't have a choice to whatever they decide is in our own interest. And if you think that these people wouldn't do it, well, then you haven't looked at history. You haven't looked at how this mad colonial uh, idea, this this mad desire to control people, is written throughout history, and they will go to any lengths to acquire the means and the systems and the technique. That's another word, not just technology. Elul talks about technique, which is the way of doing something, the most efficient way. Technique is a critical concept. Technique, it might be accounting systems, it might be quality systems. They are as pervasive, or tax systems, they are as powerful as technology itself. And technique, he said, will drive out humans, will drive out organic elements. Where you have technique, then organic elements are, are, are not desirable. And this was the same argument that Gunther Anders made in the obsolescence of, of, of man. So, um, yeah, the, the rate of change and the nature of network effects and the desire to concentrate and power, converging political power uh, across the, the, the political spectrum, coming together in a concentration of an elite who 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 know that they have a lot to gain, who believe they have a lot to gain, and are willing to engage in some kind of what I call psychopathocracy uh, without fear of the consequences, with the instruments to uh, enforce their global regime, maybe even with the noblest of goals in the minds of some, because they can pretend that they're saving the environment, uh, that will happen. It's inevitable in, in, in the nature of technology and the nature of power systems, unfortunately. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com.